1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ahmed Kuru about his book, Islam, Authoritarianism, and Underdevelopment, a Global and Historical Comparison. Ahmed Kuru, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, Ahmed. Perhaps we can start off by uh, you telling us a little bit about your intellectual biography and how you came to writing this book. I'm a
2: political scientist, and my first book was on secularism and state policies toward religion in the United States, France, and Turkey. And the first book was more on constitutional law, and the state system. But after the Arab Spring and the decline of democracy in Turkey, I have been more encouraged to write about more historical and cultural aspects of the problem of authoritarianism in Turkey, in the Middle East, and the rest of the Muslim world. So this is one dimension of this new Islam book. And another dimension is that for a very long time since my childhood, I've been grappling with the problem of the idea of decline because uh, I have a Turkish background and in Turkey many people kept asking what happened after the Ottoman glory, how come the Europeans surpassed Ottomans and other Muslims in science, technology and eventually military power. So therefore, on the one hand, I have this very long background to write this book. And on the other hand, the event in the last five, six years, the breakdown of democracy in Turkey and the failure of Arab uprisings all encourage me to write a book about the historical roots of the problem of authoritarianism and underdevelopment in the Muslim world.
1: One one of the things that strikes me in your book is that you attribute uh, responsibility in a sense for the decline of the the Muslim world in political, socioeconomic, intellectual terms, Uh, one as having started long before colonialism, and you basically attribute uh, responsibility both to the colonial powers in the later years, but also to the powers that that be that have been in the Muslim, ruling the Muslim world since in the post-Golden Age, if you wish.
2: Yes, you are right. When we look at the literature, James, generally in the United States, for example, the right-wing political spectrum generally refer to Islam as the problems in, a source of problems in the Muslim world. And the left-wing or post-colonial, post-structural academics they refer to colonization as the mother of almost all evils. So my book is trying to be critical of both approaches and saying that Islam is not the source of problems because there have been many different interpretations of Islam and Muslims had a brilliant civilization in early Islamic history. But the problems began before the European colonization of Muslim lands And in fact, we may regard to European colonization is more an effect rather than cause of the stagnation in the Muslim world. So in this regard, the book can be seen as a critique of postcolonial theory. But at the same time, I give data, I document the destruction of colonial forces made And in fact, foreigners have been distracting Muslim lands since the time of Mongols and crusaders all the way to modern era. But the main message and or argument in the book is that the problem is domestic, internal, institutional for Muslims. When they lost the economic and intellectual creativity, they became vulnerable to the foreign invasions and mostly the modern colonization.
1: And you also particularly attribute it to a fundamental change in the relationship between scholars, particularly religious scholars, and the ruler of the state.
2: Exactly, because as you know, there is a cliché in the religious studies, literature, or in the public perception in general about Islam and Christianity. According to the cliché, Muhammad was a commander, which is true, but Jesus was not, which is also true. But they try to explain everything based on this difference, saying that Jesus says in the gospel, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God, but Muhammad never said that. Therefore, from the very beginning, these two religions were different that explain why we have church state separation in Christianity, but not in Islam. So, my book is very critical of this cliche, this perception, because until the 11th century, there was a certain level of separation between religious and political authority in the Muslim world. And in the Christian world, there never was clear separation until that time and the 11th century for the european christians western european christians were the time of gregorian reformation the papacy declared its independence of the german kings and it took centuries all the way to the french revolution and you know the long story of state church debate in christian era never can never be explained by simple verses and quotations from the bible it's a long and challenging history and in islam I provide data that until the 11th century, major Muslim scholars declared independence from the state authority. According to a modern analysis of about 4,000 Muslim scholars, we call them Islamic scholars, ulama. out of 4,000 ulama from the 8th to 12th, uh, mid 11th century, only 9% were paid by the state. 91% were paid by commerce and other private sector. So that was the era of Muslim early Islamic intellectual vibrancy, development, diversity, when Muslim scholars put a distance between themselves and political authority. And let me conclude that explanation with an example of Abu Hanifa. So, Abu Hanifa is the founder of the Hanafi, the first Muslim Islamic prudential legal school of thought. And the Abbasid caliph of his time invited him to be a qadr, the judge. He refused. Then the caliph or the political authority of the time insists and asking him to give a reason for refusing that. And Abu Hanifa, the Islamic scholar who happened to be a silk merchant at the same time, said, I am not qualified to be the judge. Then the Caliph, the political authority, says, you are lying. And then Abu Hanifa says, a liar can never be a judge. Then the caliph put him in jail. There was a certain level of poisoning, and he died in jail. But this is not an exception. Many Muslim scholars stood up against political authority. That was until the 11th century. Then Islam has an historical experience of religion-state separation, which in, was very important for intellectual diversity, intellectual dynamism. But after the 11th century, the ulama state alliance or the alliance between religious and political authorities emerged as a historical construction. It is not a direct result of Muhammad's legacy. And then from 11th century to today, as we all know, Diyanet in Turkey, Al-Assar in Egypt, and many scholarly islamic institutions are servant of the state allies of the state friends of the state and that's a major problem today in the muslim world
1: right the Diyan, diana in turkey being the government-controlled uh, office in the in, in the office of the prime minister that controls the the, the clergy in turkey
2: exactly and one hundred thousand mosques all imams in this mosque in Turkey are state servants, paid by the state. And the, on Fridays, the central agency in Ankara prepare a text for Friday's sermon. All Imams recite. There is no private entrepreneur, there is no private decision by Imams about the Friday sermon. It's all centralized in Turkey under this government agency.
1: You break the transition from uh, independent scholars to state controlled scholars into several periods one being the rise of the umayyads in the 7th century and then a sort of interregnum from the mid 8th to the 11th century and then the <clears throat> and then the period that laid the groundwork for where we are today in fact with forced sunni unity Against Shiites, Mutazilis, rational theologians, and other philosophical trends. And finally, the emergence of what you describe as the military state that is allied with the scholars or the ulama.
2: Yes, exactly. You are right. So, Umayyads, I think, were very important because I would say that they were kind of secular rulers who prioritize the raison d'etat the meaning and reasoning of the state as the primary concern for this Umayyad dynasty rather than religious purposes and motivations. And since this Umayyad dynasty came to power by defeating and persecuting the Prophets' own family, uh, the grandchildren of the Prophets were persecuted by this Muslim dynasty. There, it created a disenchantment in the eyes of many Muslims, especially Shia, but also many Sunnis. The political authority lost any religious claim because the political authority killed and persecuted family members of the Prophet himself. And after that, for a very long time, the memory persists until the 11th century. So. The Umayyads are crucial because the founding king of the Umayyads, call himself Caliph, Muawiyah, was the first in Islamic history who used a crown, a throne, and a set of bodyguards. Until that time, the political authority of Prophet Muhammad and the four Caliphs after him were very charismatic. No crown, no throne, no bodyguard. Therefore, Umayyads really established a secular notion of statehood, and it led to a certain separation between political and religious authorities. And Abbasis after then came to power with many promises, but they end up with being prioritizing political purposes again. They persecuted Shia, and several of them were rationalists. In, tried to impose some rationalist philosophy. And that, create, that led scholars like Ahmed ibn Hanbal to issue fatwas and declare the notion that it is forbidden haram for an Islamic scholar to get money from the state. And I think the best example on this debate is the life story of Ghazali, the 11th century Muslim scholar in the eyes of many modern observers and analysts. Ghazali was the second only to the Prophet Muhammad as his importance and influence on Islam. What Islam, as we know today, is very much a construction of Ghazali to a certain extent. And this historical figure had many zigzags, many back and forth with it in terms of his relations with state authority. In his early age, Ghazali, in the 30s and until the age of 40 or so, was in engagement with state authorities. He was given the chair of prestigious university position of time by the Prime Minister nizam ul Mulk. But later on, he had a breakdown, a midlife crisis. He regretted to have any connection with state. He went to the graveyard of Prophet Abraham and made the promise and took the oath that he never would receive money from state authority. He would never have direct engagement with politicians again. But toward the end of his life, he again had some level of connection with politicians. So it shows the complexity of Islam-state relations and the whole notion that there is no separation between religion and state in Islam in Islam state and religion are two brothers is a wrong idea. It's a Sasani thought, not the Prophet's hadith. So that's what I'm trying to elaborate in the book.
1: I want to come back to al-Ghazali shortly, but you've already spoken about the evolution of political legitimacy uh, from the period of the Prophet and his first four successors and the period after that. It also involved an emphasis on text rather than reason or tradition-based interpretations of Islam.
2: Exactly. Thanks for mentioning this very important point. Again, so in my book, uh, I try to emphasize some key historical figures. One was Abu Hanifa, the silk merchant who stood up against Abbasid Caliph, and he was very important for your question as well. He for him Islam was something based on the ray. Ray is basically meaning the opinion of a scholar. So a scholar after reading understanding Islam can issue an opinion and this opinion is based on certain reasoning and it's not textual understanding. It's a very reason-based understanding of Islam and therefore Abu Hanifa also uh, declared that Muslims can recite the Quran in any languages. They don't need to read it in their five times daily prayer in Arabic. This is a revolutionary idea even today after so many centuries no one can really defend this idea because it's so dangerous to say these things in the Muslim world today. You can easily be declared infidel. But that's Abu Hanifa's idea that you can recite the Quran in Turkish, in Persian, in your languages. No need to be bound by Arabic. So, and he is not someone based on hadith. Uh, you know, hadith is the reports about the Actions and speeches of the Prophet Muhammad. And according to Abu Hanifa, hadiths are not the primary concern. The primary thing is the ability for a scholar to read the text, both the Quran and the Hadith, then make his own interpretation or her interpretation. But after him, after Abu Hanifa, a very important scholar came. His name is was Shafi. And Shafi produced a Legal methodology, which became dominant until today. According to this methodology, or you can call it an epistemology, a Muslim can understand law and other manners, other issues, based on a hierarchy of the Quran, Hadith, the consensus of the ulema, and if these three are not sufficient, you can use reason for analogy. So, for example, is smoking forbidden or permissible in Islam? You look at the Quran, there is no tobacco in the Quran. Hadith, no tobacco. Consensus, we can't reach yet. Then you make an analogy. Oh, if alcohol is forbidden, then smoking should be too. This is an analogy. So, as you see, reason is very marginal in this methodology. And this is very different from Abu Hanifa. But... Eventually, for many historical reasons, and according to my book, the power of Ulama State Alliance really was behind this Shafi method. They imposed the text-based notion of Islam. Even Hanafis who were supposed to follow this rational reason-based Abu Hanifa today, they were really assimilated in the textual notion of Islam, and the Shafis Text-based epistemology today is the dominant notion throughout the Muslim world, and I think this is a major problem today.
1: Text-based basically is the basis for uh, a, a more literal, more conservative, if not ultra-conservative interpretation of the faith.
2: Exactly. This literal notion, very little space for interpretation, adaptation, creativity.
1: You, you mentioned uh, the influence of al-Razali, and I'd like you to expand on that. But you also, essentially, it strikes me that you have three major thinkers, at least, who um, in some ways shape what today, modern-day Islamic states are. And that was al-Razali, of course, but also Mawardi and Ibn Tamiya, two centuries later.
2: You are exactly to the point. Interestingly, today... When you talk to Islamists, they say Islam has a theory of state. Even regular Muslims in Turkey and elsewhere, not all of them, but many, would tell you that Islam is a blueprint of society. It is a plan that teaches you what to do from restroom manners to politics. That's the cliche in my original country, Turkey, from restroom to government, everything taught in Islam. But when you ask them, what about politics and state, you can only find two and a half, bo- uh, two and a half books about these issues. One book of Mawardi, one book about Ibn Taymiyyah, and half from Ghazali's writings, because Ghazali never write a full-fledged book. There are some chapters about politics, and Sharia and how to deal the issue of caliphate. Therefore, I said half, but the two major books: eleventh century Mawardi, Ordinance of Governments, and thirteenth century Ibn Taymiyyah, and his book, the Sharia-based governors, how to deal the issue from the ruler to his flock or his Ra'ya. Ra'ya means the flock or the pop population. So the two book. Mawardi and Ghazali, why no other books since then? Because these two 11th and 13th century texts receive a canonical position. 11th century Mawardi, follower of a Shafi, the text-based method founder Shafi I mentioned before. And why did Mawardi wrote a book about the idea of caliphate? Because at that time, in the 11th century, there was an Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, like the Pope in Rome, with many differences, of course. But the Abbasid Caliphs no longer had political and military might. They were just symbolic because a Shia dynasty had the political and military power in Baghdad at that time. From the mid-10th century to mid-11th century, Shias rule Baudat, they left the Abbasi Caliph as a symbolic person. But the Abbasi Caliphs were very much willing to return to their military power, political might. And then they asked Mawardi, the caliph of the time, to write a book about the importance of caliphate to justify the position of the Abbasi Caliph in Baudat. And Mawardi wrote this book on caliphate saying that legitimacy in Islamic politics comes directly from one man. And the man should be from the Quraysh Arab tribe, prophet's tribe, and a man and not a woman. And after becoming caliph, he will stay for life. No term limit no opposition, no changing of transition of power. So, this is today a historical text. If Muslims, especially Islamists, read this text as if a religious guidance, it will lead you to fascism because it's a one-man rule. One man holds entire executive, legislative, and jurisdictional, uh, ju- jurisprudential authority and legitimacy. Two centuries after Mawardi, Ibn Taymiyyah wrote the book on Sharia-based governance in a different way because there no longer was an Abbasid Caliphate. The political and historical conditions made these scholars write these seemingly religious texts in a very uh, political point of view. After the Mongol destruction of Baghdad and the Abbasid Caliphs, Ibn Taymiyyah was living in Memluk rule, the Memluk Sultanate, and he wrote a book about the Sharia-based governance referring not a single Caliph as a one man, which may sound better, but also problematic because he says that ulema and the umara, umara basically means political rulers, Islamic scholars and political rulers are giving the divine right to rule. The people and the other classes should follow them. When we look at the Quran, there is only a single phrase about political authority Ulul Emri Minkum, those who have authority among you. For centuries, scholars and others interpret this phrase in the Quran as those who have authority based on experience, based on wisdom, based on knowledge, etc. Mawardi, with his book, interpret in a way that a single man, the caliph, has the authority. And two centuries after him, Ibn Taymiyyah interpret as two classes, the ulama and the political rulers, hold the authority. That's his interpretation. That's the zenith or the separate of time that's what i call in my book "Ulama state Alliance." and this is very problematic because it excludes two different other classes the merchants you can call them the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals independent scholars secular thinkers and others and in fact in my book i try to explain that from the 8th to 11th century Four centuries of intellectual creativity, economic dynamism, were the result of merchant class and intellectual class. But the ulama and the state, so much appreciated by Ibn Taymiyyah, exclude, marginalize, trivialize merchants and intellectuals, And up until today, this is a major problem for Muslim-majority countries, the weakness of bourgeoisie class, the weakness of intellectual class, and hegemony of ulema state alliance.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: You probably have touched on this already, but you know, having sort of described the um, the impact of these uh, thinkers and intellectuals, uh, you also say that the. There's more to the explanation of the stagnation that we're seeing today and have seen in the Islamic world. And you also note that that process of of stagnation was much slower, that in fact you had scientific and, and intellectual philosophical innovation in the Muslim world way into the 17th century.
2: Yes, definitely, because first of all, although... The Ulema State Alliance started to emerge in the 11th century in Central Asia, Iran, and Iraq. It was a gradual process, and the scientific and philosophical dynamism didn't die overnight. It took two more centuries for this Ulema State Alliance spread to Syria, Egypt, later on North Africa, eventually all the way to today's Spain or Andalus. So the geographical spread took time. Second, there was certain interventions, especially the Mongol intervention. The Mongol destruction really weakened Ulema state alliance on certain grounds and allowed some scholars having their observatories, and their uh, publications continued. But at the same time, these foreign occupations, Mongol and Crusader occupations, on the one hand, they interrupted Ulema State Alliance by destroying state, by weakening the Orthodox Ulema. But on the other hand, in the long run, they even helped the Ulema State Alliance because when people faced a survival threat, a massacre based invasion and killing, they turn to the military heroes to protect them. Because if you have a survival threat, you cannot think about better art, better music. You first need security. That's what happened after the Mongol invasions and crusaders. And in the 13th century, the hero was Saladin, the one who defeated crusaders, the one who captured Jerusalem, retake it again from the crusaders. And it's a symbol of Ulema State Alliance because when Saladin established the Ayyubi dynasty in Syria and Egypt, it gave birth to another military dynasty, the Mamluks, and the Mamluks themselves become heroes by defeating Mongols to in around today's Gaza, and did really undermine once again the importance of merchants and intellectuals in the eyes of Muslim publics because the military heroes saved them from Mongols and Crusaders. And in fact, let me give you an anecdote about Saladin and his legacy. So. In many books, there is the discussion of Muslim destruction of Alexandria Arab Library. When uh, Muslim armies, at the time of Caliph Umar, seventh century, they reach Egypt, there was the antique library in the city of Alexandria, and Muslims destroyed it because Amr ibn al As, the commander of Muslim armies uh, capturing Egypt, uh, called. Caliph Umar, no, I'm joking, there is no way of calling, but uh, write a letter and then ask what to do with thousands of ancient books in this library. And Umar sent a message to him back saying that if the content of these books are compatible with the Quran, we don't need them, just burn these books. If they are contradictory to the Quran, you should burn them too. In any case, then Muslims burned the books. So we today know that it's a fabrication. There never was such an event occurred, because when Muslims arrived to Egypt, there was no no library. It was already destroyed. The destruction started by the time of the Caesar. So who produced this this fabrication? Did an Islamophobe in Europe or North America? No, an Arab historian of 13th century produced this fabrication. But how come an Arab historian told a lie about Muslim history? Why would he do that? Because we learn later that this Arab historian who fabricated the story about the destruction of the antique library in Alexandria was the son of very close friend of Saladin. And when Saladin in 13th century destroyed the Fatimi Shia library with full of Shia and philosophical books they need to justify what Saladin did how come a 13th century Arab historian fabricated a story about Muslim destruction of library in 7th century Egypt because the historian was a close friend of Saladin and he was a son of very close friend of Saladin and he fabricated the story of 7th century to justify how Saladin destroyed a library in 13th century. So Saladin is an example of ulema state alliance as a hero against crusaders, destroyed the Fatimid dynasty library with full of Shia and philosophical books because as a Sunni military commander, he didn't appreciate these philosophical books. He may have seen them as problems, or he basically wanted to sell some of them, earning money. So this is a very important example to understand how once Muslims have hundreds of thousands of books in their libraries in Egypt, in Andalus, in Iraq. At the time when Europe had only a couple of hundreds of books in their libraries, but after the Ulema state alliance things change and military heroes like Saladin really reverse the process by emphasizing military tens of at the expense of intellectuals.
1: You um also describe in the book that there was resistance to the rise of um, a state-aligned islamic scholars and thinkers Um, and you note that you know there were many influential thinkers including ibn Khaldun widely viewed as the father of sociology perhaps you can describe that but also the fact that uh one of the things that we're still dealing with today is that their writings often only got traction after uh, they had passed away, and I guess the question there is, if their writings if had been more uh, had gained more attention at the time, whether things would have evolved differently, and we would see today an Islamic world that is very different.
2: So, thanks for the question. This is a very important question, the legacy of Ibn Haldun, Ibn Rushd, and other Muslim philosophers and thinkers. So, as I mentioned before, after the 11th century, despite the rise of Ulema State Alliance, Muslims still produce cutting-edge thinkers. But they didn't appreciate them. Many of them, like Ibn Rushd and Ibn Haldun, were appreciated later on by Europeans, not the, their own Muslim societies. Because uh, the idea of being a philosopher, a thinker, was already delegitimized by scholars like Ghazali and others. And Muslim societies started to appreciate ulama at the expense of philosophers. So the Ibn Haldun and Ghazali were still representing the kind of the last fruits of the muslim intellectual life which had very deep uh, roots in the 8 9 10 and 11th century
1: even if after like interrupt you just sure. maybe you can just very briefly describe the distinction between the ulama the, the religious scholars and what you call the philosophers
2: yeah, in fact, can we start? Yeah, let, let me start all the answer again. So that's Sure. A good, yeah.
1: Sure.
2: Thanks for the question about Ibn Haldun. When we look at early Islamic history, there were both independent Islamic scholars like Abu Hanife who refused to be state servant, but at the same time there were Muslim philosophers like Ibn Sina, like Farabi, who study the ancient sciences, quote-unquote. By ancient sciences, they refer to the knowledge and wisdom of Greek, Persian, Indian philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, and certain Indian and Persian equivalents. These thinkers were Muslim, but they were not dealing with Fukh Islamic law, or Islamic Kalam theology, but instead, Farabi, Ibn Sina and others were studying medical scientists, sciences, some of them study mathematics, physics, and metaphysical philosophy and political philosophy. There were certain level of tensions between these scholars and Islamic scholars like Ibn hanbal but since until since there was no ulama state alliance until the 11th century Islamic scholars and Muslim philosophers coexist but after the 11th century Ghazali declared Ibn Sina and Farabi as infidels apostates and their followers according to Ghazali would be punished by death because these philosophers became infidels, though they defined themselves as Muslims. Ibn Sina and Farabi both say they were they, they themselves are Muslims. But Ghazali says they are not because of three disagreements with the ulama or the orthodox ulama, I would say. One, the notion that, according to Muslim philosophers, the resurrection, the afterlife after death can be spiritual. that doesn't have to be physical Ghazali says no you can't say that if you say it is spiritual you are an apostate second the word is eternal according to the philosopher Ghazali says no the only god is eternal when you say it is eternal you are an infidel then the third is that god does not know the details the minor things but according to Ghazali god knows everything including minor details but philosopher says no god, god is not dealing with small details and Ghazali said, because of that, you are infidel apostate too. And anyone who is telling this should be punished by that. So a century or more, more after Ghazali, Ibn Rushd came in Andalus. And he was the last major Muslim philosopher. He basically said that Ghazali was wrong to declare Ibn Sina, Farabi, and other philosophers are infidels. And he said, we are all Muslim. In fact, we are part of the Islamic scholars, ulema, and we should be part of the ijma, the consensus or opinion should be part of it. Ibn Rushd was both a philosopher and an Islamic law scholar. So one can be both. The boundary is not clearly divided. And then he said, Ghazali didn't understand what scholars says about the eternity of the word because... Time and space are connected. You cannot imagine time without knowing the word, the material existence. Uh, th- therefore, Ghazali didn't really miss the nuance here. And, but Ibn Rushd was persecuted in his late time. His books were burned, not all of them, but several of them. And his influence in the Muslim world dried out. The Ottoman scholars didn't know his major books, but the Europeans learned his major books. And then uh, Ibn Rush's legacy really inspired Aristotelian philosophy in Europe. But in the Muslim world, because of the Ulema State Alliance, because of the intellectual decline, Ibn Rush was not appreciated until modern times. And some of his very important works today are translated from Hebrew, translation because we don't have the arabic original and i think you are rightly pointing ibn hardun because i spend many pages for him in my book because he is not only the first sociologist in our modern understanding but also the last major thinker in islam in the early 15th century he wrote muqaddimad late 14th century the introduction it's a Uh, analytical historical book and as you uh, if I answer your your question with one sentence yes if Muslims took Ibn Rushd Ibn Haldun more seriously they would have been better intellectually because Ibn Haldun had ideas about uh, the role of economy and even President Ronald Reagan was inspired by certain economic ideas of Ibn Khaldun and mentioned it several times in his speeches and writings. But unfortunately, because of the emphasis on Islamic law and the ignorance of philosophy and economic thought, Muslims really end up in a stagnation. Let me give one example. The Ottoman Empire, despite its geopolitical, Talent and military strategy economically was a failure because the Ottomans never understand the importance of merchant class. They gave certain f- f- uh, f- uh, favoritism policies to European merchants for strategic reasons, and then European merchants dominate Ottoman market. And Ottomans for six centuries was never able to produce a tinker about economy they didn't have an economic theory but they all focus on military and then have the Islamic law but if they learn economic theory from Ibn Khaldun things could have been better and way more different
1: um- You've sort of touched on this already, but maybe it's worthwhile uh, discussing in somewhat more depth, the transition to a clergy-backed military system that involved significant economic change from a mercantile to a feudal system, which deprived scholars of their economic base and independence. And it also laid the foundation for state-centric economies that in many ways constitute Today's template in the uh, Muslim world. Of course there are exemptions such as Turkey, but even their control of religion was crucial and elements of the Ulema state are returning with the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan.
2: Yes, this is a very important linkage uh, between the classical uh, notion of the state control of economy and the modern one. As you r- rightly emphasises. in the classical era, from the 11th century to the decline of the Ottomans, the ulama state alliance was based on a rent and rentier policy based on agricultural lands, and the land revenue distribution system was originally called ikta in Abbasids and the other Arab sultanates, called timar in the Ottoman Empire. And then in the Ottoman Empire, most of the lands were state property. Initially, in early Islamic history, private property was the key norm. But then it was replaced by state control over land. And the only option for many people is to create a waqf, a foundation, because the state can confiscate any land but waqf, the foundations, pious foundations and the this agricultural system was kind of a replacement of early monetary system with feudalism. In the modern era today, land is no longer that important, but now the Ulema State Alliance have another source of rent, which is oil and natural gas. And in the world today, there are about 28 rentier economies where... or more of state revenue coming from oil. And out of 28 countries, 22 of them are Muslim-majority countries. So it's it's a geological fact that 60% of world's oil reserves are now in the Muslim lands, and this really helped the Ulema State Alliance survive and reproduce itself in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Algeria, and other places. And even in Turkey, as you rightly referred to, despite the lack of oil, rentierism find a way under Erdogan regime. They started to sell pieces of Istanbul, which led to the Gezi event, and in 2013 many people protested that the government tried to destroy a small park, Gezi Park in Istanbul, to build a residency or a mall. Because the idea is to create rent in a country where there is no oil. You are selling Istanbul to create land, big rent by selling land, because the Ulema State Alliance always needs money because neither Ulema nor state rulers are a productive class. They don't produce anything.
1: <clears throat> Would I be reading your argument correctly if I were to summarize that the ultra-conservative definition of, for example, apostates? that legitimised discrimination and demonization of Shiites and other religious minorities, is rooted in the 11th century edicts by the Abbasid Caliphs, as well as al-Ghazali?
2: These are the key figures. So I think there is the combination of three elements. One is the Abbasid Caliph who want to reemphasize their early political power. The second element was the Persian bureaucratic class, and they included Nizam al-Mulk, the prime minister. And the third element of the political class was the Turkish nomadic warriors and the sultans, like the Seljuk empires. So these three Abbasis, Seljuk's, and the bureaucratic elements established the state, and then they make an alliance with scholars like Ghazali by establishing Nizamiya madrasas, producing a new class of Islamic scholars who are ready to be the servant of the state.
1: The 11th century in some ways is also a shift of the center of gravity from the Middle East to Central Asia with the Razanavids and the Seljuks and also, as you just mentioned, the emergence of madrasas that were designed to synthesize Muslim jurisprudence and theology in a bid to create a unified Sunni orthodoxy and produce a class of scholars that would would counter deviant trends. It also seems to be a shift that was in part driven by what we would call today climate change as well as demography.
2: Yeah, both of them, you are right. So uh, for political scientists, a major question is what is the connection between structure and agency? And the climate change as a structural change definitely led to certain reformation and rupture. But you also need agency. Agency came in the form of Abbasi, Caliph, Sertchuk, and the bureaucrats, and the scholars like Ghazali. And the combination of structural change, the climate change with the agency made the big rupture. And it had two major impact. One is the Shia themselves were influenced. Although the 11th century movement was against shias eventually in the 15th century in iran safavi empires create their own shia version of ulema state alliance coming all the way to khomeini an islamic state today in iran it's the example of ulema state alliance with ulama is very much at the top A- another dimension is that today when muslims look at institution like lsr in egypt and the Dianet in Turkey, and the understanding of Islam coming from Ghazali and Shafi, they think that that's the divine message. But it's not. It is very much a construction of 11th century and post-11th century historical experience. Islam before 11th century was very different from what we today understand as Islam, You
1: know, you described how the military state rent through conquest. And I'm wondering whether we're seeing a modern-day version of that in things like the fight for marine expansion uh, in the eastern Mediterranean or the attempts by states like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Turkey to shape the Middle East in their own political and religious mold.
2: I think it's inevitable because since the intellectual economic entrepreneurship were set aside uh, the only area one can assert a new thing is military area. Because the ulema only accept the military rulers to make laws. They don't allow intellectuals or the bourgeois to make law. But those who have swords have the power to produce law. And that's what ulema understand. For example, in Egypt, Sisi has the legitimacy. In Saudi Arabia, the king has the legitimacy in the eyes of the ulema, but no intellectual, no bourgeoisie class could have a similar legitimacy in the eyes of ulema in uh, in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. That's why if you want to be a good leader in the Muslim world, you need to be militarily assertive. And Tayyip Erdoğan understood this well, that's why he's very aggressive in Syria, Libya, and elsewhere.
1: I'm wondering whether the, the military state, and particularly in the case of the Rasnovids, as you describe it, is in a sense a precursor of what we see today of the civilizational state, as well as the religious principle promoted by the Saudis and the UAE of absolute obedience to the ruler.
2: I would say yes because, look, there is an important anecdote in my book about Ghaznavi leader Mahmud coming to Belh, which was a very important Afghan city at the time, like Paris of Central Asia. And then the people of Belh city was ruled by Ghaznevi, the Mahmud. When he left his army, another army came, the Karanids, and the people resisted. They fought. There was certain part of Bazar was burned. Then Mahmud came back with his army, defeated the occupiers, the enemy, then asked people to gather and give a speech. In the speech he says, You are ordinary people. Who gave you the right and legitimacy to fight? You have to obey whatever army come to the city. Do not resist. I forgive you this time, but I will not forgive you next time. Because of your fighting, my bazaar was burned here. You are ordinary people, no right to fight. So, this notion that the people without any sword, any fight, and the ruling class having everything political and military, very much institutionalized in the Ottoman Empire. There were only two classes, the military class and the people. The military include, interestingly, the ulema themselves, they were called the military class. They were n- n- receiving money from the state. They were not producing anything, therefore no paying tax. They had the policy policymaking, lawmaking, and everything. The rest of society, no political power, no legislative power, no sort, they cannot carry arm, and they have to produce and take, pay tax. So And that was the same mentality in Mamluk's Egypt for centuries. And today, if you see similarity in Gulf and elsewhere, it's not a coincidence.
1: Finally, you seem to share with ultra-conservatives and proponents of a statist Islam, if you wish, uh, a need to return to early Islam. But in contrast to them, you see that as the key to breaking both the ulema state and secular authoritarianism.
2: Thank you very much for this question. I I think that's a fascinating question because, yes, I really try to tell the Muslims and others that a renaissance is possible, if not desirable, because, you know, in Europe, the whole notion of renaissance with certain exaggeration was the idea that you can go back to Greco-Roman philosophy, painting, art, and other expressions in order to revive our modern conditions. Today, when we ask Muslims to have a democratic regime in the West and else in the Middle East, they say, oh, you are propagandating an American agenda. In my first book 10 years ago, I ask Muslim states to embrace passive secularism, a religious-friendly notion of secularism. They say, no, no, secularism is an American idea, a European Western idea. So in in this book, I I try to ask the question, wouldn't everybody want a more peaceful, more egalitarian, and more prosperous world? Wouldn't Muslims want to solve the problem of violence, authoritarianism, and underdevelopment? It's not imposing a Western agenda. It's what really most of the people really want. And there is a way which is to emphasize the intellectuals, appreciate intellectual philosophical life, and appreciate merchants and their economic entrepreneurship. And Muslims don't need to really imitate the Western model because they have their own history. They can look at the early Islamic history to
1: get inspiration. Ahmed, this has been a fascinating and insightful conversation. I have many more questions, but I'm afraid we're running against the clock. Before I let you go, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about, or you to talk a little bit about where you go from here. I know that you're very involved still in the aftermath of this book, but what are you thinking? In t- uh, and maybe you can describe uh, that that aftermath, uh, but maybe you can also uh, talk a little bit about some of the ideas that you're playing with for future projects.
2: Yeah, thank you. Right now, the the book is going to be translated into Indonesian and Arabic. It's very exciting for me because I am looking forward to engagement with Muslim scholars and people in Arabic-speaking, Indonesian-speaking, and hopefully, eventually, if the political conditions allow Turkish-speaking Muslims and non-Muslim analysts and observants. It would lead me to a new direction, definitely, and the next project maybe is about the the discussion about the, the new interpretations of Islam. Because in Turkey and elsewhere, some people, some modernists say that we have to embrace a, a, an approach based on the Qur'an. Abdul and others were defenders. And an alternative is historicizing. Fazlur Rahman and others says we have to put Islam in a historical context. And I'm now starting to analyze how this crumb based approach or historicizing-based approach have different disagreements. And basically, it may be at the end more normative work because the book we, you and I discuss, and thanks again for your questions, is more a social scientific book that I try to look at cause and effect relations. And perhaps my next project may be more normative.
1: Ahmed, that sounds like a fascinating project. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and take care.
2: Thank you very much, and I really appreciate your questions, and it was a, a very fruitful discussion for me. Thank you.